Hello, hello, hello. This is Chris and Eric's Songbox Adventure. I'm Chris. And I am Eric. This week it is one of my picks, and I'm going to be returning us to the world of Shakespearean drama. A couple of months ago we read Volume 1 of Requiem of the Rose King, and this week we are picking right back where we left off with Volume 2. Before we dive into the actual discussion, the credit roll call is creator Aya Kano, And then on the localization side of things, we have Jocelyn Allen as the translator, Sabrina Heap on lettering, Fawn Lau on design, and Joel Enos is credited as the editor. This is, if you didn't already listen to part one, this is a... The word adaptation doesn't even feel fully accurate, certainly at least inspired by the Shakespeare plays. It's a riff. Yeah, it's a riff on Richard III primarily, and also on, is he Henry VI or Henry VIII? He's not Henry VIII. Oh yeah, that's the it's one of all the VI. divorces, isn't it? Yes, Hen- Henry VIII is the one where you've got a song about all the wives he had, because he kept killing them or, like, annulling the marriage. Yeah, Henry VI and Richard III. <laughs> yeah, essentially... What Volume 1 established that's important to know going into this is just that Richard in this version, as opposed to having just some sort of physical deformity, this version of Richard is an intersex man, and that's going to essentially be how the themes of, like, Richard's body and something being considered wrong with it societally and it being a major factor that sort of interweaves in and out of the other drama. That's how the matter of like Richard's disfigurement has been changed for this version of the story. And essentially Richard's father, also named Richard, wants to be the king and Richard supports him. Richard's father is his idol, his hero, one of the only people that's nice to him because his mom is fucking horrible. And then, like, his siblings are okay. (laughs) But really, he looks up to his dad, and with the help of the Earl of Warwick, uh, the elder Richard launches an offensive to try and claim the title of king away from King Henry VI and... Henry is married to Queen Margaret, who, in terms of the actual military operations and everything, is the figure who is actually in charge. Because Henry hates his life as king, doesn't want anyone to die, is frequently slipping away from his duties, and likes to pretend as if he were simply a shepherd who got to live a nice natural life with no pressures, and so he'll frequently sort of, like, wander away to just spend time in nature. And one day when he's done that, in Volume 1, Richard happened upon the same place, just, like, out in the forest, out in a clearing in the woods, and they had just a nice, magical little atmosphere of gay moment where they both just saw each other and just gasped. (laughs) Effectively, just this lovely moment of... We're drawn to each other before being split up again to go their separate ways. And Volume 1, the very end, essentially, was Richard the Elder in battle, getting hit by a shitload of spears, looking like he's about to be on the verge of death in his fight for the crown. And I guess just to make sure that it's clear, almost no one knows the truth about Richard's status as intersex, the exceptions being his parents, but his siblings do not know, but his parents know. And at this point, King Henry's son also knows because he found out in an altercation in the last volume. But otherwise, it is a majorly kept secret. And yeah, does that sound more or less like everything... Setup wise, yeah, that's about everything you need to just go and listen to the last episode. 
and then, and then come back to this one. That way, if we missed anything, there you go. You found it. Yeah. Also, read the book. It's good. It's very good. Um, this volume essentially opens with some very dramatic color pages I'd like to talk about where we get the lines, Human life fades away like a sigh. Kings and beggars alike, once the gods of death come along, not a soul can escape. Now, I also have not yet read the original Richard III, but I wouldn't be surprised if these lines are, like, lifted straight from it, or just, you know, like, heavily similar to something, just this high-drama Shakespearean theme introducing, like, I guess sort of the folly of the entire plot, because all of the characters are fighting for the crown in some way or another. I'm more inbred than you. Literally, like, we are the true, purely inbred line. It's a great time to be recording this, to be honest. Yeah, this is the first episode we've recorded since uh, the Queen of England died, and it wasn't planned that way. This is not a celebration of the monarchy. This is not our tribute. All of the innocent soldiers dying over um, how inbred their rulers are um, in England does feel like a bit of a call out to um, all of the doctor's appointments that have been cancelled because they're on the same day as the Queen's funeral, including for cancer patients. Yeah, so this is our official podcast statement. Fuck the Queen. Fuck the King. (laughs) I hope she's having a horrible time with Ronald Reagan in hell. I was, like, not into the royal family, but I didn't mind them as much as, like, some people did. And, like, literally the circumstance, like, the Queen's death has turned me into a full, like, (laughs) anti-royalist. Anywho, back to their pseudo-fictional ancestors. The loose riff adaptation of a very loose riffy adaptation done to make queen elizabeth the first happy yeah which is why this whole thing with richard even started yeah like i said just the opening lines just very high drama i like them a lot they're being delivered by ghost joan of arc who haunts richard by the way and just just she doesn't really show up much in this one but she does show up a couple times and yeah she's sort of like more of just like a visual mascot than like a real multi-dimensional character just sort of a spirit that pops in now and then to be just a reinforcement of the societal view of cross-dressing essentially and like gender norms and adherence and then that's relation to richard's i don't even know that complicated is the right word for it for his relationship because it's not so much complicated so much as it's just he is a man but he is in horrible circumstances and you know has to remain i suppose closeted to an extent he's he dissociates from his body sometimes as well he like he refers to as like this body as though it's not him yeah i think that's a good note too in terms of like the language he uses it's like he doesn't think of he doesn't really think of his body as him, yeah. It's, yeah, there's a definite disconnect, especially, like, yeah. But, yeah, we open up with those lines about just how death will come for everyone, kings and beggars alike, and then we shift right to everyone fighting for that kingship anyway, because that's the high drama. And I guess one more thing before the actual plot is just the first chapter in this volume has this lovely opening two-page spread of Richard literally dancing with death as he is just in this dance embracing a skeleton. And it's very dramatic, and I like it. Foreshadowing. Mayhaps. Um, we, we have two pages of Richard essentially kind of sensing what happened to his dad um, because like the cliffhanger ending of the last volume was his father getting attacked on the battlefield and refusing to retreat. Um, and, like, there's there's a very strong connection between the two Richards, um, and so he's been able to somehow sense what's happened. Uh, meanwhile, Richard the Elder wakes up um, tied to a pole, covered in blood, and Queen Margaret, Queen Margaret 
is there, and she is full gone, full Cersei from Game of Thrones, the insane female ruler who just wants to punish everyone who's ever stood in her way. There's a lot of panels, like, closing up on just, like, her blank, wide eyes as she's looking at him incredulously, like, cry for me, bitch. Because essentially, the entire reason that she hasn't had him killed yet is that she wants to torture him, and she wants to amuse herself by watching him be unhappy and know everything he's lost. And yeah, it's just going to be... For this part, it's more of like an emotional, psychological torture than physical even. She goes through a bunch of just elaborate bullshit of like, Here, I made you this crown. Put on this crown. Everybody, bow to your king. Look at his crown. It's like woven grass, I think. I initially read it as thorns, but no, it's it's like grass. Yeah, like some sort of grassy or like yeah i had like the same initial impression of like my mind immediately goes to thorns but i think it's just some sort of like straw grass sort of thing it's it's just that you know richard is a man with long hair tied to a thing being tortured and then gets a crown put on him you just kind of assume it's gonna be thorns yeah it's kind of a familiar concept but yeah, she does the false crowning to mock him when he's not, like, crying and being miserable enough for her taste. She, like, ups the ante and turns to talking about his family, which makes him go, what are you planning? To which she says that she's not planning. She has already done her acts, and she holds up a bloody handkerchief and tells him that it is coated in blood, squeezed from the heart of his dear son, Richard. At which point, he breaks. She's bullshitting. She's fully bullshitting. And at the end of this, or towards the end of it, like right before the scene cut, when he... And like when he is reacting to the bloody handkerchief, you know, believing what she said to be true... There's this nice panel of, like, spectrally, like, what would be, like, Richard's arm sort of, like, reaching up as if to brush his father's face, you know? Just, like, sort of, like, this ghostly hand juxtaposed against the cloth. I dislike that panel. Just sort of giving the whole divine bond between these two that goes across all distance. Yeah. Um, she really enjoys seeing him cry. And then she beheads him herself. Margaret, Queen of England. Girl boss, yay or nay? How much wine does she drink? Not sure. That that will be the determinator for me. But This yeah. is a Game of Thrones joke. I, I, you are unfamiliar with Game of Thrones, aren't you? Yeah, I did not pick up on that. I have not read or watched a damn moment of Game of Thrones. Cersei is mostly known for drinking wine. And Margaret just has very Cersei vibes. It's because they're pulling from similar places. Yeah. And they're both blonde, probably. Looks blonde. Yeah, I think in the color art on the volumes and stuff, I'm almost positive that Margaret's blonde in this. Anywho, we cut away from the act of... What's the term? Regicide? Yeah. Or I suppose usurper would be regicide to move back to Richard who is having that sort of, what's going on, I can't breathe, sort of, something is amiss His moment. dad's, like, death has essentially given him an anxiety attack. Yeah. And at this point, Richard is still, like, locked up in a room in a tower, essentially because his mom stopped him from going out to battle, because... His mother's terrible. He's locked in a tower because his mother put him there. Because his mother put him there because she thinks that his intersex body is essentially proof that he's a demon who's going to spell doom for his father and the family. And at this point, um, the Lancasters, that's the side of Margaret and co. Some of them have arrived at Richard's family's palace and his name is Edward, yes? Oh, um... Richard's older brother? Yeah. 
Uh, him and then also I was thinking the son of Henry is also named Edward. So I guess to clarify, um, Margaret and Henry's son, Edward. God. <laughs> who? Um, Edward Lancaster. Yes, Edward Lancaster. The one we mentioned earlier as having found out, or at least... He thinks that Richard is secretly a girl. Yeah, like he saw Richard in a state of partial undress. I think it was specifically bare chest and now now believes Richard to be a woman. So he's one of the few characters that like suspects some form of Richard is not a cisgender man. None of these people know what cisgender means. That word does not exist yet. But point being that the Lancastrian Edward arrives with some other Lancasters and basically it's like, I don't even know that capture is the right word. Like he arrives and finds Richard and ever since seeing Richard's bare chest and growing to think that Richard is a woman... Edward's just been thinking about Richard a lot and, like, has a thing for him. I was to say, it reads as a crush. Yeah, like, it's totally a crush. And, like, when Richard's asleep, there's this moment of Edward being like, he is kind of cute when he's asleep. Or ever, I suppose, she's kind of cute in Edward's mind. Um, Again, Edward thinks that Richard is a girl and is just infatuated, and when Richard comes to, they converse. Basically, Edward informs Richard that his mother, Richard's mother, Cecily, has already left. He's been left behind, abandoned. Richard's just kind of like, yeah, no shit, that's what she does with me. And Richard's kind of baffled why Edward is so interested in him, since he has no real volume since he has no real value as a hostage, since even his mom left him behind, and... He's like the third son along as well. It's the least important one. I'm wondering, from Edward's point of view, why the hell would they pretend that a third child is a boy in the context of, like, European monarchy? Doesn't make any sense at that point. Because at the point when you're getting to the third kid, a woman is actually more useful because you can marry them off for alliances. I guess you can do that for boy as well, but it's weird. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know that he's... I don't think he's necessarily reached the point of trying to reason. (laughs) Yeah. But, yeah, when Richard just directly asks why he's so interested, Edward just blurts out, probably because you're a girl. And Richard then headbutts his ass to the fucking ground, possibly bloody nose. Hell yeah. Yeah, and... One of many moments of just justified physical violence in response to misgendering. And Richard says, I'm not a girl. I'm my father's son. And he called me Richard. And at this point, Richard leaves and is essentially on the streets trying to figure out how he's going to catch up with his father and with, like, the rest of the army on his side, now that his hometown has been occupied by the Lancasters. And essentially, he's thinking that he's gonna need to get a horse, he's gonna need disguise, and conveniently, at this point, a knight happens to see him, and is just like, what are you doing there, citizen? So, uh, Richard kills the shit out of him? Yeah. Richard, first blood? Yeah, this is... The first murder that Richard commits in this story. Far from the last. Far from the last, even in this volume. But yeah, this is our turning point of first bloodshed by his hands. And the man essentially was trying to be nice. You know, he was just like, oh, are you a citizen? You know, be careful. Bandits. Pillaging. Yada Literally yada. Every other soldier in this army is currently just like burning and stealing their way through this town. Yeah. And at one point, I think it's notable that he thinks that Richard is a child to just further emphasize Richard's youth and 
sort of the extremity of the actions that he's going to begin to commit and that, you know, Richard... I don't remember if his exact age has been given, but by modern standards, he wouldn't be an adult. Like, he's certainly less than 18. Like, he's probably, like, 15 or so. Yeah, he reads, like, 15. Yeah, and essentially Richard, honestly, not even with a lot of premeditation, just very quickly steals this man's sword, slays him, and dons as much of his armor as he can make manage to fit his much smaller body. And yeah, essentially Richard clothes himself in fragments of armor, a cape, gets the man's horse, and on his way to getting prepared to leave, he notices a locket that has fallen to the ground from the dead man. And it is a locket with the name John Gray engraved on the side of it in Harry Potter font and containing a photo of a woman and two children. And Richard kind of has a moment of regret realizing, oh, yeah, no, I, I killed a person. At which point, Henry shows up and he's delighted to see Richard, who is currently like sobbing over a dead body that he just made. Yeah, Henry... It's like, I'm trying to find the right wards, because I don't necessarily want to say entirely that Henry is infatuated more with the idea of Richard than he is with the real Richard, because he also doesn't know the real Richard very much, very well, so it's not like there's enough knowledge to have much of a dichotomy, but it just becomes more and more evident that symbolically Richard is just this figure who brings him joy as soon as he sees him and he wants to stay with Richard he wants to go with Richard wherever he's going and Richard essentially just keeps arguing with him and being like no I need to be alone I need to do everything alone but it's clearly half-hearted and you know Richard is still freaking out from literally every aspect of his life but at this point primarily you know Worrying about his father and also the fact that he just killed a man for the first time. He is covered in blood. He is covered in blood. Um, Something that makes Henry remark, are you okay? You're covered in blood. And, you know, Richard says that it's not his own. He's fine. And we get a line of Henry just being like, if you're not hurt, why are you so upset? Because he just sees through him. And... Every time they meet, it's like this brief little magical respite from the rest of the world, you know? Anytime they're separate from the other characters, it's just sort of this check-in of like, Oh my god, it's you, Richard. Are you okay? You're not okay. Come be with me. I'm a shepherd. Getting swiftly infatuated with Richard is a Lancaster family trait. Yes, yes, this reminder that King Henry, again, is the father of the Edward we were talking about ten minutes ago. Edward is the same age as Richard, for, for clarification, by the way. Um, this is very much your fave is problematic. My fave is problematic, but I'm not going to pretend he's not still my fave. None of this would be remotely okay in a real-world context. It also isn't necessarily being portrayed as okay here, it's just being portrayed. Yeah, like, I don't think... This is not, like, a happy-go-lucky, oh, we're gonna have a really great outcome to this. This is gonna be a real relationship, no. This is this is the two of them having a very odd meeting next to the corpse that Richard just, like, as I said, created because he killed someone pretty much in cold like the way he wasn't wearing any york sigils or anything he probably could have lied his way out of that but he wanted the disguise so he killed the guy for the disguise yeah he wanted the disguise and he wanted the horse and i guess he didn't want to wait and try and see if he could find a less bloody way around town he just saw the quickest opportunity and he took it almost before he knew he had it seems like it's a very quickly paced moment anyway as Richard and Henry are talking the spell is broken Uh, more people on the Lancaster army side show up 
Well, Richard runs away right before they do, because he still doesn't know that Henry is Henry. Yeah. Important context. The man that he is infatuated with, he does not understand, is also the man he most wants to kill. Just, you know, just everyday problems. Misunderstandings just happen like that all the time. Sometimes the old man that you're so drawn to, you also want to murder. Um, I mean, Margaret shows up looking full horror movie villain behind Henry um, while Richard leaves. So Henry is clearly just very despondent at having having to return to both being king and hanging out with this woman. Yeah, every time that either she or her attendants find him, it's very much a sense of, that's where you ran to this time, finally found ya, come on, we need to go stick you in a room where, you know, you're still not gonna do anything, but where you can't run away, and we need to at least have you alive as a figurehead, while your wife does all the work. Sorry, she just sort of made me think of Gone Girl. <laughs> Everyone says it's good, but I have not seen her read it. It's good. You you would enjoy Rosamund Pike in that movie. Okay. Moving on to the next chapter, Richard has begun to make his way across England to try and rejoin the army on York's side. And essentially what's happening battle-wise is that everyone else but Richard knows that King, or would-be King, I keep calling him King, although the whole thing is he failed, but would-be King Richard the Elder has died. The rest of the army is just trying to do what they can to keep up their side of the fight with the idea of York still taking the crown with the eldest son, Edward. Old Edward. Yeah. Edward York. Edward York, not Edward Lancaster. The English don't have enough names to pick from, apparently. They also don't have enough blood pools to pick from. (laughs) But, yeah, um... The Earl of Warwick is sort of the main figure in the army now, trying to marshal everyone to just keep doing their best. And the state of the war and of the conflict seems very, um, it seems very precarious at this point. Like, even though Richard the Elder has been killed, it's not an instant victory for Queen Margaret. You know, the oppositional forces are still sizable margaret still having to do with like mayors of towns not yet recognizing her authority it's a very crucial point where everything's still up for grabs but the rest of the yorks are still alive and now obviously they're not going to back down because they want revenge yeah honestly killing him was a fuck up she should have just kept him until she broke him down enough that he renounced his claim but you know she's made him a martyr essentially yeah Yeah, she's stupid. Yeah, yeah, I won't argue with that. She's too bloody-minded to actually, like, get what she wants. (laughs) Yeah. Meanwhile, on her side of things, she's speaking with her husband. Um, Henry is freaking out and crying at the sight of the battlefield and all of the dead people. Because the whole reason that he tried to give up the throne beforehand was just that he didn't want to see more people get hurt. And... Margaret asks him, For what breach of propriety did your son lose the right of succession? Tell the boy to his face. And Edward Lancaster goes, Father, you cannot disinherit me. The son of a king naturally becomes king. And it's essentially this scene of Margaret shaming Henry for trying to give up his rights to the crown as opposed to dying in spite, you know, and essentially just for not being bloodthirsty, for not being kingly enough, not doing his royal duty, and for, like, failing his quote-unquote duty to his son, because his attempt to give up the throne is essentially deemed as, you know, the effects that it would have on the family of essentially him abandoning his son to lose his royal god-given right to the kingship. He's just, there's just a lot of him writhing on the ground, just apologizing and crying. He's very pitiful. Margaret's basically like, I never should have become your wife. I imagine she's wishing now, in hindsight, that she'd married Richard. And then, you know, could have had him take over. Because, yeah, Henry is not fit to be king. 
because he doesn't want to be on any level, nor is he really capable of it. Yeah, this is going beyond just his volume a bit, but I think that's probably one of the most interesting aspects of Henry as a character, theoretically, is just, you know, like, the royal who has the position put upon him that he never wanted. And I'm not saying that to, like, excuse all of his actions ever, you know, I'm not trying to say he's a perfect little small bean, but I think it makes for an interesting character, you know, of just like, and you know, and it creates just all that more harsh and apparently bold of a dichotomy of Richard wants the crown more than anything, you know, at first for his father to have the crown and then going on, it will be for him to ascend to it. But, you know, he wants that kingly power. Meanwhile, there's nothing that Henry wants less, and he actually has it, and he wants to throw it away. Just, you know, just just some tension between lovers. Well, Not actual lovers, but how big do we think the age gap is, I guess, just to fucking address that? Because I don't think anyone here is actually super old. Do you read him as, like, what, maybe, like, 40 like oh, King I Henry. was going to be wishful thinking and assume he had his son very young, but I was going to be, like, 35. Yeah, like, he's not... He no- would have gotten married on the younger side because they do that anyway. Like, he would have wound up getting married to her, presumably by 20, probably younger. So I'll be as generous as possible and say that we've got a 20-year age gap. Yeah, that probably is about right with the early marrying and everything. And he also, he is not drawn to look old at all. Honestly, I think if one was to just, like, look at, say, promotional art and some of the covers, I think it would be easy to forget the age gap, because there are points in art where, like, him and Richard effectively look the same age on the page. Like, this is a very young-looking king. If it weren't for Edward Lancaster, I would have forgotten that the age gap was going to be that significant. I would have assumed, oh, this is, like, a 20-year-old king with a 16-year-old, I'm like, that's dicey, but nothing significant in the grand scheme of things. It's really the existence of the son that's Richard's age that serves to be like... Who's also into Richard. (laughs) Who's also into Richard. A thing that we will find as we continue in this manga is that virtually everyone is into Richard. But anywho, um, as Richard is making his way through... Uh, Lancastrian occupied lands. We get another creepy dark night scene in the forest where essentially, yeah, it's just late as night. He's riding his horse as hard as he can to the point of basically just wearing the horse the fuck out. He comes upon a house, a small little like cottage in the woods in the hope of finding brief respite through the night. And gets taken on by bandits, we get another scene of, like, the bandits are essentially aiming to take all of his possessions, but in the process, rip the shirt open again, and I think it's good that the manga doesn't do a whole lot more scenes like this, you know, because I think... If this became a literal every-volume thing, I worry that it could teeter into feeling exploitative depending how poorly or well done it was. I think as is, it handles it fine enough, you know, like this is just a reality of what he's dealing with. But I'm also not sad that we're not going to keep getting this so frequently. Yeah, this sequence is really intense, um... Especially, like, the implication that they're going to, like... Well, the it, the implication is that they're planning on raping him when they find out. Yeah. Well, when they think they find out. Yeah, like, one of them straight up is like, you go first, I'll take my turn second. It's... Yeah, it's very grave. It's a very bad situation. And Richard manages to shake them off by... When the first man, like is getting close to, like, bend down to assault him. Richard essentially immediately knees the man in the crotch and then manages to hurriedly run out and escapes on the horse, who, as I mentioned, is already worn out. 
So the horse manages to get him at least far away enough to escape, but not much farther. And there's a panel of like the horse's neck coming up against a branch. And we don't get like a super big blood splatter, but I I took it as the implication of the horse potentially even dying, certainly falling, and Richard falling with it. And we essentially get this scene of the weekend Richard and the horse having like fallen to the ground in the cold of the night, cold enough that like death by the cold without shelter is a real fear. And as Richard is sort of losing consciousness, he enters one of the recurrent sort of dreamscape vision scenes where he is first approached by Whitey, Whitey being the boar, if you did not read volume one, if you did not listen to the last episode, Whitey is essentially just a boar that Richard happened upon one day who sort of frequently will appear to him as like a brief moment of peace and comfort. And then Whitey's place in this sort of like nestled little dreamscape is replaced by Joan of Arc holding him and like keeping him warm through the night. What do you think, I guess, of... Whitey and Joan of Arc and their continued use and thematic everything. The boar is specifically something Richard saved last volume. And typically this coming up in recurring narrative, especially with a character who is on a, what is very clearly going to be a very dark path um, based on honestly only a few pages from now. <laughs> I think the point you made about the boar being something he saved is crucial. You know, like, in a way, he sort of represents Richard's potential for kindness, I suppose, and acts that aren't bloodthirsty, but are yeah. of, you know, nurturing. And... And then he's comforted by... That's conflated very specifically with the gender non-conforming stuff of Joan of Arc, especially after Richard's just been sexually violated in a pretty horrific way. Yeah. Yeah. Like, there's positive ways to express yourself as well, I think is what's going on here. And the potential for that is there in Richard, but it's not going to wind up being fulfilled because of his situation. Yeah. Which, like, you know, in a lot of ways, the Joan of Arc comparison immediately mentally one would go to the oh well she got put to death you know the sort of dark aspect of that but in this brief little scene we get just sort of that comforting moment of as you said there are other ways to express yourself and to be and it's just a nice comforting moment that sort of continues to highlight the manga Richard as being a more sympathetically presented character and at this point, I would still argue more morally gray than the original play character, which is essentially just propaganda monster. Yeah, yeah, he was, like, had a hunchback, and, like, yeah, it was like a whole villainization of disabled people as well, frankly, um, which is something you would both expect from British media and from, like, anything from that time period. Um, you still get that almost every James Bond movie. Any physical deformity makes you a villain. It's just that trope. And this isn't that trope. Yeah. Richard uh, will shortly wake up from his dream and essentially finds brief sanctuary in a church where another man who has come there for rest ends up telling him what has happened or rather his version of what he thinks has happened, what everyone is saying happened, where he recounts to Richard the story of how the Duke of York, Richard's father, fell in battle. And then he also, like, details some of Margaret's torture to include, you know, the story of the bloody handkerchief with Richard's blood. And, you know, obviously Richard knows that part's not true because he himself is alive. But... Yeah, essentially Richard is filled with the fear of his father being dead and he makes his way to, I'm not entirely sure if they're castle gates or I think they're just like the gates to the town where mm. 
Margaret post the beheading has put Richard the Elder's head up on a spike, like old school public shaming and warning style. Just first thing when you see the town, just head up on a spike. And Richard just... First of all, slaughters his way up there. Absolutely slaughters his way. It's like, I'm trying to think of how to describe his mental state. Like, he's in mourning, but also largely seems like on autopilot mode. As he's just going to destroy anything that gets in his way. He kills at least three, four guys on his way up there, I'd say. Yeah, like the guards to this town and this, like, keep at the gates. Including one, I'll specifically note, we don't see, like, the head falling, but, like, the angle of, like, the blade slash makes it look like Richard is doing a little beheading of his own in his way to get back up to his father's head. We have a silent scream panel of, like, Richard and Universe is screaming, but there's no actual text. We just get the hyper dramatic like sort of shaking motion lines with the open mouth and yeah he kills the shit out of all the guys up there on his way to it and once he gets in front of it he sees a vision of his father smiling at him and yeah we just get a series of panels of like Richard touching his father's head with his hands like gently And then he's picked it up and is holding it again, just gently smiles at the head. Father, dot, dot, dot. You turn the page and the text reads, my light, dot, dot, dot. As he is fully holding and kissing his father's head on the lips. It's been a couple of days. That's a gross head. Also, this is like a lot of kiss. This is a very intense looking kiss. You asked me before recording if I thought that there was tongue going on, and I think probably. It it definitely, like, there is at the very least some open mouth going on with this kiss. This page, I think reading my way through the series was the first, like, gag moment. Like, the first single page or image that was just, like, a fully shook me moment of just turning the page and not expecting, could not be prepared for just this chapter, you know, where he's fought his way to try and meet his father, learns he dies, makes his way to the severed head, and what does he do? He plants a big old smackaroonie on it. He sure the fuck does. In this, like, like closed eyes, like, intimate, happy-looking expression, making out with daddy. <laughs> making out with daddy (laughs) that's what he's doing (laughs) oh god (sighs) yeah what did what was reading this scene like for you for the first time um (laughs) i was i was very much with it like yeah this makes sense he would totally do this as soon to get to the head and i was like oh damn um okay and then i turned the page and i moved on (laughs) It is truly a moment. I think that's, like, I think it, for me at least, has to be, like, the most defining page of this volume. Like, this is the moment. This is gonna have to be the cover off of the episode. Yeah, yeah. Listeners, do you ship it? Um, this is the equivalent of Rob Stark making out with Sean Bean's severed head for all the Game of Thrones fans out there. I was about to ask, who the fuck is that? It's more Game of Thrones. I recently listened to the books on audio, and they're way better than the show, so good news. Okay. The next chapter after that, we're going to move forward in time a little bit. And essentially, now that his father's death has been confirmed, Richard is... He's the Joker, baby. He's in a full fugue state, just murdering his way across the country. Anyone with a red rose is just getting their throat opened. And it's literally like, where am I? What am I doing? Everything is the color of blood. Yeah, just like a ton of pages awash with black and gray. Which is meant to be red, presumably. Just sort of like a darker aesthetic than like most of the pages have like much more like actual solid white on them. But 
Yeah, like his first kill earlier in this volume was like, you know, he was shook and, you know, I'm not excusing it, but I think if it had stopped there or if all of the deaths that he dealt out were similar to that one, I think it would be a very different view of the character than the one we get in these last chapters of this volume where he is effectively upon his father's death being confirmed. The switch is turned. There's no hesitation. He is fully in murder monster mode, killing all the Lancastrians he can get his hands on. Lots of like inner dialogue, monologue about just like blood, blood. I want blood. My body is set afire. Everything is the color of roses. We even get like a panel that's just like his body like engulfed in flames metaphorically as he's just fully given himself into the sort of bloodshed. How are you feeling about Richard as a character at this point? Um, he's still sympathetic in a way that I, I get how he's wound up in this place. But also, these soldiers didn't do shit, frankly. The, that's the thing about all of these medieval wars. These people are in these armies because they were born in certain areas of the country, and this is just what they're stuck with doing. And unfortunately, this beef between two families has resulted in who knows how many people getting murdered for no real reason. And, yeah. and now, well, the, the, the Lancaster soldiers aren't responsible. So um, at this point, I would say by the end of the story, Richard needs to go. But maybe Richard can be allowed to kill Margaret first, on the way out. Yeah. Some loose plot threads, I suppose, just like beats that I want to make sure to mention. In the midst of this, um, Edward the Elder, Edward York, uh, the king, or I keep thinking, would-be King Richard the Elder's elder son Edward, has a conversation with the Earl of Warwick, where he essentially reaffirms his wish to be king and the two of them are going to be partners and devoted to each other the way that warwick was with the elder richard and they're still going to be fighting for york to take the crown meanwhile of course margaret's not going to back down every bit is devoted to her own side retaining the crown for lancaster as she has been and in the next decisive battle Essentially, what's going to happen is that a bunch of Lancasters are going to get taken the fuck out, and the tide of battle is largely going to be turned by no one expecting it, but this just monstrous figure just mows them the fuck down. Oh, and um, on, on Edward Lancaster's side, on the younger, his mother specifies that they're not going to kill the girls in the family because if they marry them off po for political gain or Edward could marry one of the uh, female Yorks because it would also demonstrate the appeal of peace which Edward the Younger immediately imagines getting married to Richard and basically goes hell yeah and next you know and, and is gonna fight for the crown and really for Richard's hand Specifically for Richard to be forced by Margaret to marry him, which is fucked up. Yeah. Um, but I'm sure that'll be very important later. I don't know that there's a single healthy romantic relationship anywhere in this series. <laughs> Certainly not at this point. Yeah, no, they're all terrible. I don't know like how happy Richard the Elder and Cecily were together, but also... She was a little monster. Yeah, like, he's not doing a whole lot to stop her from emotionally abusing their children, so... Yeah, none yeah. of these families are good. <laughs> Shit's horrible. And, yeah, like, we say Richard is doing bloodshed, and just... The way he's rendered is always, like, heavily in shadow. Some panels make him, like, look a bit more monstrous in silhouettes, particularly with his armored claw. Sometimes we get, like, the one eye that we used to get when he was, like, a little kid in the forest, but now it's 
older Richard removing heads. Yeah, and like one really good panel in particular, Richard's not even in, but it's this long panel of about a dozen Lancastrian soldiers and the blood spurting out of all of them as we see like one of them's head is literally popping off. Some of them, the downpour is coming from their necks, from their shoulders, their chests. It's like just like a shot in the aftermath of Richard like slicing and dicing them all in quick succession of like, here is the wake of what he did. I think the action's really well done. I think like, you know, it just, it flows very well. It's very dramatic. It frankly just looks cool. We get this really foreboding shot of Richard in silhouette as viewed across the battlefield by Margaret, who looks on in horror as she just sees this figure in all black with like the monstrous hand and the hanging cape above what at this point is nothing but corpses on the ground. And he, meanwhile, is just thinking more, more, more blood. And yeah, she's explicitly referring to him as a monster. And yeah, some, some lines have been crossed. She, um, she lies to everyone as to why the uh, collapse of the rear of their guard was due to reinforcements from the enemy. And it's like, it was one kid. A singular reinforcement, not reinforcements, plural. It's also, I suppose I should note, during this section, um, the York army, I guess just some manner of, like, trick of light or whatever's happening, there's a point where they look toward the sun, and it seems to, like, reflect in such a way that's as if there's free suns next to each other, and that's going to sort of be taken as, like, an omen of victory and representing the free sons of York and... You know, they win this battle as heralded by this trifecta of sons, and he just is the bloody, bloody bringer of doom who, you know, can't have literally been the only factor, but feels like he effectively changed the tide of battle all on his own. An attack in the rear would have caused a lot of chaos in the lines, um, with the number of people he's shown killing, that is that is quite a lot of people to suddenly lose at the rear of the battle where you're not expecting to have any bloodshed. And if the lines go into disarray, then that's just going to ruin everything for them. Yeah, and like he's specifically able to like pull it off because, you know, of just disguise and no one's expecting him. You know, he's taking advantage of the fact that no one knows who he is. No one recognizes him. And he's effectively there on the battlefield, ready to take them all down. Like, by the time he's there, it's too late, because he's killing people before anyone even knows anything's wrong. If you've ever played the Total War video games, you know how just how effective it is to charge a unit into the rear of the enemy? Causes way more damage than the front. Yeah, they just are not prepared. And, yeah, it's all just really good, like... It's all just really well done, just fully depicting the literal of what's happening and also, you know, its relationship to Richard's mental state. And, you know, there's just lots of nice drama of comparing the blood and roses and paint the world the color of roses. And in terms of a decidedly unmerciful, we are monster territory now. There's a point where there's a man who's, like, half-submerged, like, lower half of his body submerged in water, like, in a river or a creek. And he's asking Richard, please, will you help pull me out of the water, you know, so he doesn't freeze to death? I have a family waiting for me, please. And Richard does this, and the man says, thank you, and then Richard kills him. And, yeah, we then just get more shots of all the corpses across the field and dramatic metaphorical rose petals fluttering in the wind just all the blood that richard has shed it just looks really fucking cool iacono is a good artist yeah damn richard (laughs) yeah um war crime number one there might be more i shouldn't 
definitively spoil, but there may be more to come. <laughs> but yeah, after some time has passed, um, Richard is awakened to find Catesby, who Catesby was his attendant growing up. He's a young man not much older than Richard himself. Uh, Catesby is the one person who I neglected to mention when I did the list of people who know the truth about Richard's body earlier. Catesby also knows because of like his old role as Richard's retainer. And the two are talking and essentially Catesby says that he has left his old master to return to serving Richard. He's devoted. Um, he's going to be a major figure going forward. Just this is the man in Richard's corner. I suppose I'll say with his father gone, you know, he's going to take on the role of this is the main, like, I don't want to use the word blind follower, but just, you know, he's in Richard's corner. He's going to be the staunchest ally going forward. Yeah. And he, like, helps the war-battered Richard make his way back home. And we get some stuff of celebration now that... Oh, well, before we get to that, the panel where... so. He's basically saying that Richard should go home um, because what his father would have wanted was for him to be with his, to take refuge with his mother and his older brother, George, not the eldest Edward. Um, and this just great panel of Richard turning and saying, I must hurry home and comfort my mother with the most terrifying look on his face. I, I When I was reading this, I was probably like, oh, he's going to go and kill her. <laughs> it's giving Norman Osborne... <laughs> Like, just... Matricide time. Yeah, it's giving utter contempt. Like, oh, of course. Of course I should go see Mom. And, uh, yeah, yeah, it's a good thing that you pointed out. But, yeah, they make their way home. There's lots of celebration. Edward Lancaster is going to be declared the new king. Um, he is essentially in a great like, strong partnership with Warwick, um, still devoted to that family, helping that family, you know, maintain their power. And a lot of the specific details of this last scene, I don't feel as much need to get into. But essentially, the thing to know about the new King Edward is that he is a ladies' man. He wants to fuck every woman in the kingdom, every last goddamn one. He's a ladies' man. There's a little sense in some dialogue with Warwick that, you know, maybe going forward we'll see if his womanizing ways don't have, you know, bad effects given the way that a king should or shouldn't act. And, you know, this is royalty and marriages and relationships are supposed to be strategic and not based in love and lust. Yeah. Yeah, I, this is a recipe for trouble. Um... I think the most important thing is he does get Richard to dance with Anne Neville? Neville? Neville, right? I think Neville. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Anne Neville is one of two daughters of the Earl of Warwick. Uh, so that's why she's there. That's what's sort of connecting these families. And basically during the like party celebration of the new king's ascendancy... Uh, Edward has a moment where he talks to his brothers and is just like, go, be merry, celebrate, lovely ladies, spend some time with them. And neither Richard or George is particularly actually into it. George is like, why girls when I can have booze? That might come up again later. <laughs> and Richard's just like, you know, let's just appease them. We can just, you know, we can at least do a dance. And so Richard takes the hand of Anne Neville in dance and last volume she was like weird about him um and like upset him like she she was like oh you're so different from other people which made him very upset at the time and she apologizes because like she wants to be friends and she feels like she said something terrible so it's actually a nice moment yeah like she missed a whole lot of murder she sure did like as you said, they met as kids and now, you know, happening upon each other again in the celebration. It's a fairly 
earnest moment of like we get this panel of Richard like blushing and it's sort of the most just like happy mentally focused on something other than murder and revenge that we've seen Richard since his blood spree since he made that with his dad's head yeah here is another potential romantic figure for his life to I guess at this point make a list of shall we say free I guess between his father the king or rather former king Henry and now Anne Nivelle who you know there's probably at least a little more potential in this relationship than there would be if we were gonna carry on with a with a beheaded head (laughs) Anne would also be smart politically yeah because as we said uh Earl of Warwick's daughter so it's a matter of like fervoring those ties so you know that would be the smart thing to do i doubt it's what he's going to do but that would be the smart thing to do i think that richard and anne's relationship is really interesting in the way it plays out across the series and i look forward to for your sake you getting to watch it happen (laughs) she's definitely crushing oh yeah like she very clearly has a crush and like You know, it seems like he's still emotionally numb a bit, but with, like, the blushing and stuff, there's the sense that there's at least the potential for him to feel something there, even if he's still, like, more mentally preoccupied. Yeah, yeah, she's into emo boys. He is quite an emo boy. (laughs) Yeah, he has a lot to be emotional about. And also, before we forget, at this banquet, a woman appears before the king. She is begging for him to hear her out about regaining lands that were stolen from her family, her husband's old lands. You know, the king's just like, we're partying right now, come back later, I'll hear your petition. But this woman's name is Elizabeth, and we immediately get the sense that the king is looking at her like, ooh, pretty, for this woman who is from the Lancastrian side of allegiances so you know maybe things will get messy there but yeah we get that and then we get the revelation that this is the widow of john gray and she's gonna try and do what she can to get revenge yeah she meets with her brother um and basically reveals that she's planning on like ruining everything for um edward york as revenge Meanwhile, Henry is, um, he basically wakes up in, is it France? Where did they go? Scotland. It... Scotland. They went to Scotland. There you go. They, they've went, they've gone to a much better country. And, um. He's really yeah. happy. Yeah. Like, Margaret's pissed. And, you know, they've lost the war. But he's jubilant. He looks doughy-eyed and i'm not the king i'm free yeah like we get this panel of him looking out the window and there's a bird flying through the sky freedom and the volume ends on this shot of him on horseback free from his old position free from the kingship and it's him just sort of thinking to himself as he goes off into the distance, wait for me, Richard, I'm on my way. I'm coming to see you. So we have this, like... Man, this is, that is a child. Yes. Yes. But we have this comparatively more upbeat <laughs> note that we're ending on as every other character is just like, ah, yes, blood is coming, more blood. And just, like, the sense... There's just, like, a lot of stuff laid down here of just, there's so much trouble brewing between Elizabeth Woodville, between the king's, you know, disastrous romantic proclivities in general. How's that gonna affect Warwick? Richard's clearly just... Insane. Yeah, just a... He's lost it. Nothing good is gonna come from that side of things, and... Yeah, did you have any other points in this volume you wanted to mention or talk about? Um, general, uh, generational violence really sucks. Everyone just wants revenge for the thing that was done to get revenge on the thing that was done to get revenge on the thing. Just 
Stop. Stop it. You're all idiots. Yeah. But, yeah, would you say this was a similarly good, high-quality follow-up to Volume 1? Yeah. Yeah. Does it, like, get you interested to still want to keep reading? Yes. Yes. We definitely need to keep reading. Cool, cool. We will not be doing that next week, however, because it is your choice of comic to talk about. And it also is specifically going to be kicking things off for October when we intend to... Spookify the podcast. Yeah, we're going to be talking about horror comics and then maybe some that aren't even necessarily like horror, but would fit like, you know, the Scooby-Doo metric of feeling Halloween-y of just like monsters and stuff like that. But yeah, what is our first little spooky tale next week? Um... It is the Titan Comics 13th Doctor comic, um, specifically the first year they did it. We will be reading Doctor Who, the 13th Doctor, numbers 5 through 8. I apologize in advance, we just sold everyone on Spooky Month. This is not going to be spooky. Uh, This is the spookiest the 13th Doctor comic line got, and she's leaving the show this month, so I wanted to do a comic with the 13th Doctor in it. <laughs> There's monsters, at least. It, it has monsters. It is Doctor Who, so there is indeed a monster. Um, it fits the vibe, I suppose. My next picks will be proper horror comics, I promise. Yeah, until then, thank you all for listening, and bye. Bye.